So the scene from last week's study uh, was really an interesting one, wasn't it? The nation of Israel was quick to show their fickleness. And remember how Moses was up on the mountain, and uh, all of a sudden they're walking down him and Joshua, and they're hearing, you know, sounds like war in the camp, but, I mean, it was spiritual war going on because the whole nation of Israel had turned. They'd, they'd say, well, Moses, we don't know what's happening to this guy. We need a new God to lead us on from here. And they make a, they make a golden calf. They make their own God. I mean, you see just how quick the people were to turn away from the direction that God had for them, from the things of God. What I find intriguing is that, you know, Aaron is the guy that's, that's leading all of that down in the camp. People are coming to him, right? And, they're, they're, and he's like, okay, well, bring me your jewelry. We'll throw this in the fire. And as he tells Moses, I just threw it in and I'll pop this calf. Like, amazing. Isn't that cool? But, but Aaron's the guy who's leading all this. And, and he's the guy that ends up, God uses to be the, the high priest in the tabernacle that Moses has been getting directions of up in the Mount uh, of Sinai. And so it's amazing just to see God's grace in all these things and the fact that Israel's not all just completely wiped out at this moment. Just the mercy and the grace of God. And we're thankful that, that we serve a God of second chances, aren't we? Isn't that a blessing? And Aaron is certainly experiencing that. Well, here we get into chapter 33, and we begin to see God getting ready to move the people of Israel. How many people like to move? Any just kind of perpetual movers here? I know some people, like, every year, it's like, you know, moving to a new place, right? Well, I don't think it's a, it's a joyous thing for a lot of people. Moving is not always fun. But here we are in Exodus 33, and God is getting Moses and the nation of Israel ready to move now and to move from Sinai and start making their pilgrimage to the Promised Land, the place that God had for them uh, in Canaan, eventually Israel, of course. But there's one key element that Moses wants if he's going to move anywhere. And we'll find out what that is as we move along here in Exodus 33. Verse 1, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Reading on in verse 4. And when the people heard this bad news, why was it bad? Because God said, I'm not going up with you. I'm going to take you out if I go with you, right? But when they heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So after sin had been dealt with, chapter 32, golden calf, right? Once sin has been dealt with, God's ready to move them on to the next place he has for them. Understand something. Sin is always going to keep you from God's best. Sin is always going to kind of ground you and, and, and keep you in a place that's not what God has for you. Once sin is dealt with, then you can continue on moving with what God has. And that's what we're seeing here in chapter 33. It's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's the nature of sin. And here we see now God, who's dealt with it. He provided atonement for them. Praise the Lord for that. They're ready to move on. But I love, I love the dialogue that we see through Exodus, right? Because here, once again, this ongoing dialogue between God and Moses over who's responsible for the people. What does God say, right, in, in verse 1? Depart and go from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Moses, they're your people, right? It's time to move them on. All these people that you've brought out. And this is the ongoing dialogue. It's kind of funny to see this, this, this discourse happening here between the two. They don't want to take responsibility for the people, and they're looking to kind of pass things on. Well, in verses 2 and 3, God reminds the people, first of all, of his promise to give them the land, right? He says, I will give you to this land that I will give you. So he's got the promise of the land. He's got the power to deliver it to them. 
And then uh, he's going to remove all the inhabitants, he says, all the people that we listed. God's going to have a great display of power, just bringing the people into land and removing the current people that are in there. But this time he says that his presence will not go with them. So they got the promise. They've got the power of God. But the presence, God says, is not going to go with you. Some might look at this whole account of God potentially consuming his people and conclude, well, that's just God not being patient over his people. What's, what's the deal there? Yet we read in the Bible that God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. In other words, anything that's not holy in his presence will be devoured. And so God is saying that if he were to lead them, he knows of their propensity to sin. And of their rebellion that is repeated all the time. And under those conditions, well, they would be absolutely consumed in his presence. He says, you're stiff-necked people. And that speaks to their stubbornness. God wanted to lead them one way while they continue wanting to, you know, stiffen their neck and go, no, I'm not going your way. I want to go my way. It's a great characteristic of the people. So you see, God is essentially showing his mercy by not having his presence directly with them at this time. Although, we'll see as we move along in our study tonight, the intercession that takes place and the willingness of God to move in their midst. Now, notice how Israel responds to all this. It says that they were filled with grief. They're mourning over this. It says they mourned and no one put on their garments or their ornaments, I should say. Hopefully they had garments on. Didn't put on their ornaments, all right? You see, the people are beginning to get the importance of God's presence with them. And this is a tragedy to them. They're beginning to see the importance of their own humility and reverence before God, that they want to do things God's way. They're stripping themselves of all their ornaments, all the things that they may have seen as flashy. Said, no, these things aren't important. We want the Lord. That's what's important. Ornaments, we know, of course, to be the jewelry that they received coming out of Egypt, the same jewelry that... Aaron collected and making the golden calf. Apparently, there's still some left over. But interestingly, this Hebrew word for ornaments can also mean trappings or bridle of horses. The same word is used in Psalm 32.9, which says, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding. Notice this, which must be harnessed. That's the word ornaments there. Translated in Exodus 33 here. Which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will come or else they will not come near you. See, the Israelites are learning to put aside the things that might cause them to be pulled back like a harness towards the things of the world. God has delivered them and and set them free, but their freedom comes in worshiping God and worshiping God alone and worshiping God in his way, right? They've done things their way. They've been pulled along according to the things of the world, the things that they've seen out of Egypt, they've been pulled along that way. God says, it's time to strip yourself of those things. Put them away. Have a a right reverence of God. Grieve and mourn in humility. Take off those things that are going to get in the way or distract or, or begin to lead you astray. Depart from those things and turn to the Lord. So we read that the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments And that's exactly what we're all called to do, isn't it? We need to recognize the pull of sin and the temptation around us and strip ourselves of the things that might easily ensnare us or trip us up. That's what we read in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So notice that let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Strip yourselves of those things that want to drag you down or hold you back from God's best. How often do we just follow along in things that we think, well, it's, it's not really a big deal. It's just kind of comfortable. And yet it begins to ensnare us. It begins to trap us. 
it begins to hold us back. And God has something so much greater and better for us. And God is looking to lead the people and doesn't want to see them making the same mistakes they've already made. Lay aside the things that are going to get in the way. Look at verse 7 as we continue on in chapter 33. Verse 7. So Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp but his servant Joshua the son of Nun a young man did not depart from the tabernacle did you catch that Joshua the only person in the Bible without parents that's the only recorded person without parents it's the son of Nun you saw that there okay listen come on now you gotta bite on that when you okay so Moses now, <laughs> Moses now, quite clearly and, and radically, says, if God will not be in this camp, I'm going to go to where he is. That's what we see Moses doing. He takes his tent, and he sets it up outside the camp to meet with God and to worship with the Lord there. See, Moses had a, a real heart for God. Moses, we know, was completely dependent on God. And he's like, God, if you're not going to go with us, well, I'm going to go where you are, man. I'm going to get outside the camp and anything that might hold me back, and I'm going to get to where you are. I'm going to worship with you. And it says in, in, in verse 9 that the cloud, which is always, again, symbolic of God's presence, it descended upon the tent. Sometimes it takes removing ourselves from certain environments that might be getting in the way of us communing with the Lord and enjoying his presence. And removing ourselves from certain places and seeking after the Lord. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me. All those who seek me diligently will what? Find me. Are we seeking the Lord diligently? Are we taking time to press in with the Lord and to seek him? If it means getting up and moving from places that might be holding us back. Like our living room couch in front of the TV. Are we removing ourselves from places and environments that might be a distraction? And interestingly, it says in verse 10 that all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. That's interesting. And it's kind of like a lot of people today. They may be interested in spiritual things and, and intrigued by them, maybe even having a reverence towards them, but it's all done from a distance. They want to be worshippers of God, but do it from out of a place of comfort, I don't want to really leave my tent here. I'm just going to watch and observe. That's cool. Man, there's a cloud over there with Moses. That's amazing. But I'm just going to stay here in my comfortable place and worship the Lord. They don't want to press in or get too close. And oftentimes we miss out when we try to worship from a distance. J. Oswald Sanders says, every one of us is as close to God as he has chosen to be. Every one of us is as close to God as he's chosen to be. How close to God do you want to be? See, God will not take you one step further than you want to go. He doesn't violate your will. Sometimes I wish he would. Because sometimes I, I kind of need a bit of a, a kick in the pants, right? Get going, Brent. Come on. Don't settle for where you're at. But as I look around and I see people in tune with the Spirit, matured in their walk with God, I don't need to wonder why that's so. It's a direct result of their proximity with God. They've been the ones that have pursued God, sought after God, and have taken time to meet with him. May that be the case for all of us. Say, Lord, I want to I pursue you. Oh, we're thankful that he's here with us. But are we pressing in? Are we removing the distractions and pressing in with him? And notice this, amazingly, in verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. 
Here's the result of stepping out in wholehearted devotion to God. There's amazing intimacy that's developed. God's speaking with Moses now face to face. Now let me just say, it's not that Moses literally saw the face of God because we're going to read later on in, in verse 20, God says, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So it's not that God in some physical form now is, is sitting there before Moses. But what this is meaning, and it's a Hebrew idiom to say that there's this intimacy. It's not speaking of a theophany, but it's speaking of this great intimacy with the Lord. There's free and open fellowship taking place now with God. That's what Moses is experiencing as a result of stepping out and setting up his tent outside the camp to meet with the Lord. We know 1 John 4.12 says that no one has seen God at any time. Though we may not see God, we have the privilege of knowing God. And we are ones that get to have that free and open fellowship with him through our Savior Jesus Christ. We get to spend time with him in his word. And, and through prayer, we have direct contact with God and intimacy with the Father in and through Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of a spiritual face-to-face -face with God each and every day that we step out and seek him and open up his word and begin just to take time with the Lord. And here we read a Joshua that's so impacted by this example of Moses that he remains in the tent. He's seeing this devotional life of Moses and Joshua, who we begin to see little snippets of as we go through the book of Exodus, because he's the guy that God is raising up to be the next leader. And why is he a leader? Because he's a guy that knows what's important. Here's Moses seeking with the Lord. Well, I'm going to hang out in the tent a little bit longer. I'm going to spend some more time with God. Reading on in verse 12. We read this, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people again. Lord, let's, let's, come on now. I know you keep trying to pawn them off on me, but let's just be clear. They're your people, God. You're the one that brought them out of Egypt. We all know that. Now, Moses states that God has him leading the people out of Sinai, but he doesn't have understanding of who God is going to send with them. Now, we've saw, seen earlier in the chapter that God says, I'm going to send my angel before you. He's already stated that earlier in Exodus, but Moses is like going, I don't have that relationship with the angel. I've got a relationship with you, God. And basically Moses is saying, I'm not content with no angel. I want you, God, and you only. <laughs> you are the one. It's you or nothing. This is the attitude of Moses. And, and here's this interceding heart of Moses shining through again. Because God reveals this potential course of action of, okay, I'm not going with you going to be an angel. I can't go there unless I, unless I just consume the people. But he's drawn Moses into intercession, and Moses is praying and seeking God's best. Notice what Moses says in verse 13. He says, show me now your way that I may know you. That I may know you. Here's Moses' heart. God, I just, I want more of you. I want to know you more. You know, we can get very sidetracked with other things. We can settle for substitutes. I mean, how many people wouldn't mind having an angel going before them? I'd be like, hey, man, an angel. How awesome is that? But Moses is like, no. God, I want to know you. I don't want to settle for any substitute. I don't want to settle for anything that's, that's not you. Let's be found seeking after God and walking in his presence. Let's not allow anything else to take his place in our lives. Notice how Moses asked for these things in verse 13. If I have found grace in your sight. If I found grace in your sight, that's the only way we can approach God and be accepted at all, isn't it? By the grace of God. And it's that same grace by which we, as Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
We have opportunity and privilege to approach God, and it's only by his grace. In fact, it's even called the throne of grace, because that's how important that is. And notice this now, verse 14. Wow. Here's Moses been interceding. God, no. Only you will do. Here's Moses been pouring on his heart that I may know you, God. And notice now the response, verse 14. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And God said, Moses, did you not hear me? I just said, I'm going to go with you. He didn't actually say that, but you think Moses, he just said, he's, okay, verse 16. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. I find that very interesting. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's interesting the kinds of conditions we oftentimes put on what constitutes rest or what that rest looks like. Lord, if you would just give me a spouse, I'll be happy and I'll, I'll find rest. Or if, God, you would just grant me that promotion at work, then I'll, I'll be at rest. Lord, if you just do this or if you would just give me that, Lord, that's what's going to provide some, some peace and rest for me. We think that that presence, things that God might give us, is going to satisfy and bring rest, but it's simply being in the presence of the Almighty and allowing His presence to be leading us and directing us and finding contentment and rest in just being in the presence of God. Moses felt so strongly about this that he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from your Lord. I don't want to go anywhere. If your presence isn't going with us, it's not going to be worth it. I don't want anything to do with that, Lord. I only want to be where you are. That's Moses' attitude here. That's the key for us, isn't it? God, if you're leading me, your presence is going before me, then that's where I want to be. Because that's going to be the best place for me. Amen to that? If God's presence is there, if God is leading us and directing us, and that's where his presence is going to be most experienced, that's where I want to be. Nothing else should satisfy. Now, the very presence of God with the people is going to be the very distinguishing factor for the Israelites. This is what, what would set them apart from all the nations, as, as Moses is saying here. He says there at the end of verse 16 that, that we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. See, all of the nations worship false gods that can do nothing. Their gods need to be carried around with them. Their gods can offer no help for them. But God's presence would be a known thing that would cause other nations to fear. We, we see that as we, as we move into Joshua when Rahab hides the spies. And, and Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. She goes on to say, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. I mean, before the Israelites even get there, they're already hearing about the great power and might of God and the presence that's going with them. Now that's beyond Israel. She's not saying, oh, we've heard about you as a nation. You guys are pretty amazing. She's going, no, we know it's your God. There's no way that you could be doing this for yourselves. And he indeed is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So this becomes a distinguishing factor for Israel, the very presence of God with them. Look at verse 17. Let's continue on. Verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Not show me the money, but something better. Show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So again, 
Moses receives a great blessing and promise from God, not because of his goodness, but because of God's grace. Moses was faithful to seek God and intercede, and the fruit of it is evident here now in this great blessing that Moses gets to be a part of. See, Moses is not just content with being led by the presence of God. He wants to know God even more. He says, show me your glory, Lord. Oh, I know your presence is going to lead us and go before us. Thank you, God, that you've, you've answered my prayer and that you are going to lead us. But Lord, show me your glory. I want more of you. See, the more that we know of God, the more of God we're going to want to know. Maybe your time in the Word right now is kind of a little bit dry. Keep seeking. Keep pressing in. Keep digging. Because this is filled with treasure for us here. And the more that you know God, the more that you're going to want to know God. The more that you're going to want to keep pressing in. And so what does God say? He says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. See, God's glory is linked to his goodness. His glory lies within his goodness. If you can't see that God is good, then your understanding of God is, is incomplete. If you can't see that God is good, then your understanding of God is incomplete. And sadly, there are many that go through life wondering, how can this be so? I've been through such hard times. I've, I've lost a child. I've lost a job, lost a spouse. How is God good in that? But we can continue on knowing that he takes all of those miserable moments or months in our lives and he uses them to bring good, whether it's a better situation that'll come as a result or a breakthrough in your own spiritual life that couldn't have happened unless you went through that trying time. God knows. And he sees the beginning from the end. We only see the immediate. And that's where we often get troubled or out of joint because <laughs> we're only seeing what's in front of us. We're not walking by faith, but we're walking by sight. But God is faithful. And he brings us through those tough times to a day of rejoicing where we're able to look back and see finally that, God, you used each ordeal, each circumstance, as trying and painful as it was, you used it for my good. You used it to better my life. To where we can say, God, you're good. We need to come to that understanding. Theologically, no matter what you face, no matter what you go through, no matter what you might see happening in the world, that it doesn't alter who God is, the very nature of God, that, that God is good. Now notice how God would reveal his glory. He says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. He's going to kind of preach a little mini sermon to Moses. We're going to see that in chapter 34. See, the name of a person in Bible times was very much linked to their character, their nature. And God's going to reveal his nature to Moses by proclaiming who he is. By proclaiming the name of the Lord, he's going to give Moses a glimpse of his glory through a word. But notice again, like we read, and we'll, we'll get to what that is, chapter 34, but he says there, in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Again, God cannot show his face. And that's just an anthropomorphic term to mean his, his full glory. It's not that God has, we know God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body, he doesn't have a face per se, but that's, it's an anthropomorphic term to, to be able to kind of relate to God based on what we know. But it's speaking of his full glory. And he can't reveal it to anyone because why? They would die, Right? God is completely sinless and holy, and we are not. And we'd be consumed in that consuming fire that God is. That's why we need to be made new and lay these temporary tents aside, as we've been seeing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Lay these tents aside for heavenly habitation that's going to be fit for heaven and able to stand in the presence of God and experience the glory of God in an even greater way than Moses is going to encounter that. But our desire now should be to ever be growing in the knowledge of God and seeking his glory. We have an advantage that Moses did not have. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to Philip there, 
Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 4. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You've seen him, you've seen the Father. But some of you might say, well, I haven't, I haven't seen Jesus. I haven't experienced a Christophany. Open up God's word. This is all about Jesus right here. Spend time in his word and you'll be spending time knowing Jesus. So God afforded Moses something, however that would have been such a blessing. He's going to give Moses an opportunity to catch a glimpse of God's glory. God's going to place him in a protective cleft of a rock. That's where Augustus top lady got his great hymn from. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. I love that hymn. It's a good one. And it's right from here, Exodus 33. And notice, notice Moses didn't need to find this rock or crevice to stand in. It says God's going to provide it and place him there. So too, God has provided a place of safety for us to take a stand in. It's Jesus. He is our rock. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, I believe it is, that that rock was Christ. He's the one which reveals God and brings us to God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He reveals the Father, brings us to the Father. We find shelter, we find refuge, but we find that provision in and through Christ by which we stand, by which we have now an opportunity to see God, to meet with God. Moving into chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. So Moses had previously, remember, when he came down from the mountain the first time, I mean, he sees what's going on in the camp of Israel, and he threw those two tablets down that he'd already received from God the first time he was up on the mountain. He throws them down, they smash, and it's very symbolic of Israel breaking that covenant with God. And so now, he's told to make two more and come on up to the mountain and to come up alone. Again, Moses is to act as mediator between God and the people. See, Moses lived that life of devotion, and he was blessed for it. He didn't miss out on anything. He's not walking around going, Lord, man, why can't somebody else go? I want to hang out with my friends for a bit. He's, think about this. I mean, he's not missing on anything. He's gaining everything. He's getting this intimate perspective of God in this relationship with God that I think anybody else back in the camp would have absolutely died for. Reading on in verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So the cloud, again, speaks of the presence and the glory of God. It was the cloud that led Israel by day, the cloud which previously covered Mount Sinai, the cloud which came to Moses' tent in the last chapter that we've seen already. God comes down and he shows Moses his glory. But, again, it's not through an, an act or a, a, an earth-shattering display of power. It's not revealing his glory that way. He does so rather by a revelation of his character. He proclaimed his glory by a word. Don't ever estimate the, underestimate the power of God's word. You're not sitting down reading some historical book written by man. You're coming into contact with the living God who has proclaimed his glory 
through his word, my friends. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's repeated numerous times in Scripture. When someone wanted to know what God was like, they could quote this verse. This revealed who God was. After saying the sacred name Yahweh, which God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, denoting his self-sufficiency and self-existence, he explained the meaning of that name more fully by highlighting now several attributes of himself. And this could easily be a sermon in and of itself, but we're going to look through it briefly in our context here tonight. Now, again, when we see the name of the Lord in the Bible as it's given here in verse 6, we see both um, the Lord here and then the Lord capitalized. Every time we see capitalized, it's a sacred name of God that's derived from his proper name. In order to keep the proper name of God sacred and holy, the Jews made up this tetragrammaton, a word of four letters. They took out the vowels and they spelled God's name with Y-H-W-H. All right, that's the tetragrammaton here. Y-H-W-H, where we get, you know, the name Yahweh. But here's the deal. This was such a very holy name and revered name that they wouldn't even speak it out, the, the full name of God. And so they would replace it with the, the name, uh, the Hebrew word Lord, which we see oftentimes in Scripture, and that just simply meant Adonai. So because of them not saying that name, the proper name of God, they kind of basically even forgot the correct way that it was spelt, the, the full name of God. So whether it was, you know, Jehovah or Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh, nobody's really sure. So Jehovah or Yahweh simply means the existing one, that he is our all in all. That's why when Moses asked God, who shall I say is sending me? God said, I am who I am. Basically saying, I'm the existing one. I'm all that you need. I'm, I'm everything to you. I am who I am. That was essentially the name Yahweh. The self-existing one, the all-existing one. So when Jesus spoke those words, it caused the Jews, remember, when he used that name, I am, the religious leaders, I mean, they went ballistic because they knew exactly that he was claiming to be equal with God. They picked up stones ready to stone him. So, Here's the Lord now revealing who he is here now. And so what do we find out about God? Well, first of all, even though we may not know the exact name of God, we know his nature and his character very well. First of all, we see that he is merciful. That's number one that we see here. He's merciful. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve as people, what do we deserve as sinners? We deserved hell, judgment, punishment. But I mean, God's merciful. He's kept us from all that. Israel is a testimony of that. Look at how many times they messed up, and yet God in his mercy spared them. We've been spared. And notice that this is the first thing that speaks of God. Mercy is the centerpiece of the character of God. This is very mercy. And then we see that he's gracious. Number two, he's gracious. Grace is very similar to mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve his love. We don't deserve eternal life, but yet it's been given to us based solely on the grace of God. We're getting that which we do not deserve. And then we also see that he is long-suffering here. This means that God is slow to anger. <laughs> he doesn't have a short fuse like some of us have. And it's very contrary to what, how many people think of God in the Old Testament. They think that God is just this wrathful, vengeful God, ready just to, you know, smite somebody down at just the slightest, you know, movement off track. And so people have that view of the Old Testament. They're like, oh, I don't really like the Old Testament. I like the New Testament God. Yeah, let's not talk about the Old Testament God. And yet, here he is revealing himself. He's long-suffering. There's no difference between the Old Testament God and New Testament God. It's the same God. But some people view him in this way, and yet here he's revealing himself, his character, his nature, that he is long-suffering. 
And that's what Peter reveals when, when he's writing his epistle, why some people wonder, oh, where's, where's this coming of God that you say? Peter said, he's long-suffering, wishing that none would perish. God is slow to anger. He doesn't want to bring out his wrath upon those that have forsaken him and rebelled against him. He's, he's giving people opportunity to turn to him. It's long-suffering. And we see he is abounding in goodness. Abounding. I like that word. Not just good. It's like abounding. It's like just, woo, like Superman abounding, leaping over a big building or something like that, right? It's just, that's a terrible picture. But it's, it's linked here. We see his glory, again, linked to his goodness. We serve a God that is good. May not always seem like it at times, but based on these first three descriptions of the character of God, not many can refute his goodness now, right? Merciful, gracious, long-suffering. He's good. And we may not always understand in the present, again, that goodness of God. But again, how we need to walk by faith and know that all things, as Romans 8, 20, it says, all things are working together for the good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now we see, not only is he good, but he's a God of complete truth. The very nature and character of God is, is truth. I don't need to question him. I don't need to doubt him. I don't need to wonder if, God, are you, are you deceiving me here? Are you tricking me in this? Are you telling me to do this? And then you're, you know, you're pulling the wool over my eyes and all of a sudden it's going to be like some, some prank. You know, like, God, there's one thing that God can't do, and that is lie. He's absolutely true. I love what Jesus says in John 8, 31 to 32. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth now shall set you free. And then we see that he is a God that keeps mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Interesting, three different words are used for this wrongdoing. McDonald says iniquity has to do with perverting the ways of the Lord. Transgression means rebellion against God. Sin is literally offense, primarily by missing the mark which God has set. They all convey the idea of falling short of the glory of God. It's interesting. Falling short of the glory of God. But here we see again, God is a forgiving God. God doesn't want us to continue on in sin. Sin is damaging, and it brings separation from us in our relationship with him. That's why he's provided the opportunity of forgiveness for us. It's not just reserved for a few. It's available for all who ask. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin constantly wants to get in and impede our walk with the Lord and, and divide us in our relationship with God. But God's provided forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. Don't let sin drive you away from God, may it cause you to run to God and say, God, I have erred. I've committed. There's three things you can do, iniquity, transgression, or sin. I've committed these, but God, I need to find forgiveness in you. Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. I want to be right with you. Now, what's interesting is we look at verse 7 there. Again, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin. By no means, notice this, clearing the guilty. Now, my New King James Version has the guilty in italics. That means it's not in the original text. It's been added by translators, presumably to give some understanding to the next phrase that says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That, that has troubled many people. Now, yes, God is just and righteous, and the guilty don't get a free ride. But what I believe is meant here is that God will not clear away what he has just said about his nature and his character. That God's not going to go back on who he is and what he's already revealed himself. See, many have used this verse, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, children's children. Many people have used that verse to 
teach on this generational curse that might happen, the doctrine of generational curse, where they say, well, this battle with sin I have is, is because my great-great-grandfather battled with that sin. And I'm just a byproduct of that. I just, I can't help what happened because I've got this curse upon me. That's hogwash, my friends. This teaching fosters people making excuses and placing blame rather than accepting responsibility and simply dealing with it properly through repentance, through bringing it to the Lord, seeking forgiveness and saying, Lord, I, want to, I need to die, not just to that sin, I need to die to myself. I need to stop letting this have a foothold in my life. It doesn't need to. The more that you are surrendered to God and seeking after God like we're seeing Moses doing here. See, God's addressed this already in his word for us. This whole foolishness of generational curse. Look at what he says in Ezekiel 18, verse 1 to 5, and then and we'll jump down to verse 9. It says, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? On edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel because, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. This is the original, you know, generational curse doctrine being taught. The people of Israel are going, oh, look it. It's because our fathers ate the sour grapes that now our teeth are, are set on edge that, that we can't help do what we're doing. And God himself come, says, Get out of here, people. It's so foolish. I'm going to deal with each person. That's what, what God is saying to us here in God's word when he says, I'm going to come and visit the iniquity. It simply means he's not going to give up on those to come. He's going to continue to visit them and show them their need for him that they may repent and have life in him. He's not coming to visit their sin from the Father say, well, you know what, your fathers didn't deal with this, so now you've got to deal with it. And I'm going to keep, you know, visiting this iniquity upon you. That's not what God is saying. He says, I'm going to visit you to draw you to repentance so that you might experience life in me. I'm not going to give up on you. You don't have to be a product or a byproduct of what your folks or your grandparents have done. You have opportunity with me to live, as he said to them in Ezekiel. Yet we understand that there are are repercussions of sin that certainly have an effect on generations to come. But because your grandfather was an alcoholic doesn't mean it's in your genes. God won't condemn you for your parents' or your grandparents' sin. It's not an inherited problem or behavior. Oftentimes, it's a learned behavior. It's something that you've been around, that you've seen, that sometimes, again, people just follow suit in. But God won't let you suffer in your sin. Remember, he's merciful. He's gracious, and he'll visit you and reveal himself to you so that you may turn from your path of destruction and walk in his marvelous light, that you might be found just and live, as it says in Ezekiel 18.9 here. We'll look at the response of Moses now after seeing the great revelation of God's nature and character. Look at verse 8. So Moses made haste, and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. What led Moses to bow down and worship? Not a display or, or glimpses of outward glory, not a, a manifestation of a power of signs and wonders. No, it's a wonder of the word. It was God just revealing who he is through his word. Don't seek after signs or experiences to motivate you to worship. Don't think that I need to have some kind of experience. Just get into the word and let his love and grace amaze you. And you're going to find yourself worshiping our great and good God. If you've been struggling to worship, get to know him through his word. And let it inspire you to be a worshiper like Moses. Now, notice here as well Moses' humility. Because he could have easily separated himself from the people. Right? He could have said, Lord, all right. We'll, we'll continue to pray for these people. We know that they're stiff necked people, God. 
We know they got problems. Moses doesn't do that. He says, I know that we are. Notice that many times that he includes himself. We are stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance, Moses says. He includes himself in all these things. He's, he's a man that's growing in humility. The more that we, again, just like happened to Peter, just like happened to Isaiah, when they began to get a, a glimpse of the glory of God, they recognized an even greater awareness of their own sin and unworthiness. Well, the more that we worship God may continue to grow us in our own humility and just in awe of a great and awesome God. Verse 10, let's continue to move through quickly. Get your Bibles open, guys. We're going to read, and we're going to just keep marching through here because i got to wrap up. Chapter 34, verse 10. Everybody with me? All right. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall seek the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I'll do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your, in your midst. But you shall destroy your, their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no mold of gods for yourselves. So we pause there as God gets ready now to move the people out. He reiterates the law to remind the people that there are things that, that can get in the way of them seeing the glory and the goodness of God. God wants the best for them. See, the law is not meant to be a hindrance. The law is meant to be a protection so that they don't corrupt themselves and defile themselves and bring pain upon themselves by following along with the other nations that they're going to be entering into. God brings them a law to be a safeguard for them. Not to, they're not going to be walking along going, oh, Lord, why can't we do what they're doing? Everybody else is doing it, God. Why can't we do it? Everybody else is devouring themselves in their sin. God says, I want to protect you from that. I have the best in mind for you. So what God does is he goes through, in summary, what's already been covered in chapters 21 to 23. And that's why we're going to kind of move through this quickly here. This is already what we've covered already. But he goes through some of the law with them. Again, verse 7, you shall make no mold of gods for yourself. That's, that's so paramount for Israel. That's one thing they're going to continually get trapped in. But notice in verse 14, again, here's what's at stake in all this. In verse 14, it says, You shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He's a jealous God. We've already seen so many attributes of God's character of his name. But here's another one that's revealed. His name is Jealous. And remember, guys, this is not about God being jealous of us, but he's jealous for us. He wants us for himself, not out of a selfishness, but out of an understanding that our peace and joy depend on a loyalty and commitment to him. If we move away from him and move on to something else, he knows that that is, is not going to be for our good. It's not going to be for our best. And God is jealous for us, not of us, but for us, because he wants our best, and he knows that that is only going to lie upon loyalty and commitment to him. Verse 18, continuing on, the feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. That's around April, around now, and that's speaking of Passover, which we're going to be celebrating in a, in a uh, couple days. For in the month of Abib, you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. 
and you shall observe the feast of weeks or uh, of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So again, all that is covered in uh, greater detail in our earlier study of Exodus, but we see these three feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, three times throughout the year, all Jewish males were to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts, and again, it's to be a reminder of what God has done for them. It's to keep them focused on the Lord and on who he is for them. Now, verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor, to these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So anything offered to God must not be mixed with anything that could defile it. That's what, what the Lord is instructing here. Now, that's a weird one. Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, verse 26. That's a, uh, a weird kind of prohibition, but it may have been because of religious practices that were going on among other you know, heathen nations in that time. And God says, I don't want you to do that because that's what others are doing, and uh, you need to be separate from that. And today, Jews will not mix these things. They'll not have any kind of milk with, no, you can't go to Israel and have a good old, you know, milkshake with a hamburger, unfortunately, right? Don't mix the two. Well, I mean, I can, but I'll get hated for doing so. But now it says in verse 28 that, again, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And notice what it says, he neither ate bread nor drank water. How did he survive without water for that? I mean, you can't go, what, three days without water, right? And it would seem that God has supernaturally provided for Moses in this time. And God once again wrote out the Ten Commandments on the tablets that Moses brought. And Moses on the mountain for that time, same time that he was earlier. But unlike that earlier time, now we see the Israelites to not panic and make a new God for themselves. Wondering, well, how long is he going to be? Well, they're so long, he must be gone now. They're not panicking. They're, they're trusting. They're waiting patiently. And here's Moses returning with a glowing report. Now look at verse 29. Now it was so. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. It's like he's you know, completely altered now. He's like an alien-like. He's like, what is going on here, Moses? Like, they're freaked out by him. Verse 31, then Moses called to them, and, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. But when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil, put a veil on his face, but whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Why did Moses come down with a glowing face? Because he's been in the presence of God. He's encountered his glory, and that should have an effect. Shouldn't it? 2 Corinthians 3. We've been over that recently on Sunday, and this is a great commentary for what we're seeing here in this passage. This glory attached with the giving of the law brought a glow. But how much more should the new covenant that we now have bring about a greater glow and effect in our lives? When we are pressing in to the Lord and, and walking in the grace of this new covenant, and we should be people that are shining bright like stars for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Like we heard 
going through this text, Moses didn't, you know, put the veil on when he went out to the camp to keep people from seeing the glow. He put on that veil to keep people from seeing the fading glow. Because this covenant, as great as it was, was not as great as it's going to be under the new covenant. Under the work that we have now provided for us in and through Jesus Christ, by which we get to look into. And without a veiled uh, face, we get to look in and see the glory of the Lord. Yeah, you're holding us in a mirror. It may be faded, it may be faint, it may not be all that it's going to be one day in the sense that we are not in his presence, but we get to look unto Jesus and see this glory of the Lord and allow that to transform us into the same image from glory to glory. Oh, may we be pressing in and may that be having an effect in us, not just in how we live, but how that's demonstrated to others, that they might see the great glow of the glory and the goodness of God.